Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Time now for our weekly global politics segment and the pleasure as always to have Thomas Conway, politics and economics a student in studio with me. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Good to see you. you constantly educate me because um, South Africa had kind of gone off my radar uh, quite a bit, but you're going to speak to us uh, about it today, particularly about the foreign policy of South Africa. Yeah, Thomas. they have taken a really interesting turn, a kind of an ominous turn in yeah. terms of foreign policy. Like, just to go over it, when we think of South Africa, I think we... We conjure up this vision of a country of universal rights. We associate it, obviously, with Nelson Mandela. He kind of, he led it out of the era of apartheid and into a a new era, a new epoch of kind of hope. But in recent times, its foreign policy has become increasingly oriented towards Russia and China, which I think is quite worrying. And it's kind of baffling. It's kind of perplexing in a way, because South Africa has traditionally been allied with the West Mm. and a lot of Western countries since its emergence from the apartheid era, since Mandela came to power and even his successors after that. So just to to go over it, I mean, in terms of trade, the US accounts for 7.5% of its trade, the EU 22% of its trade. So you can see there's an economic relationship there between South Africa and Western countries. now. So, so why this look to Russia and China? Now, there is probably something to be said for aligning itself and establishing greater ties with China. China has 16% of trade with South Africa, so maybe something to be said there. But it's really interesting. Uh, why, why it has decided to tilt towards Russia and China exactly, it's hard to know. But I think it stems from attitudes within the ruling party, which is the African National Congress Party, the party of Mandela, which has in recent times fallen foul, I think, of corruption and sleaze and other negative things like that. There is, I think, a degree of loyalty within the ANC, within the African National Congress, to countries such as Russia. They provided it with arms and ammunition during the apartheid era. There is still a degree of loyalty there, but as is there Marxism within the ANEC? There is a slight ANC tilt anyway. towards it. Yeah. There is a slight tilt towards it, and I think that is what is influencing this interesting foreign policy tilt. There's also the issue of investment in the country. A lot of Russian tycoons, multi-billionaire Russian investors, have invested heavily in South Africa. China has also invested heavily in South Africa. So there is that kind of that economic uh, economic relationship which exists but that shouldn't uh, that shouldn't undermine the fact that this is this is worrying from a from an african perspective from a broader african perspective south africa's diplomatic diplomatic actions are actually harming the continent as a whole because you know during the mandela era it kind of as i say it emerged from this terrible era of repression and oppression into a new epoch of hope and South, mm. South Africa would have backed uh, peace peace efforts in countries like the Congo and Zimbabwe. Now things have kind of turned mm. on ahead. But there's all sorts of social issues. I mean, crime, I keep hearing about in South Africa, is a, is a huge issue. Staggering levels of crime, staggering levels of crime, staggering levels of... Uh, a lack of infrastructural investment, a lack of infrastructure, things like that. It hosted the Soccer World Cup back in 2010. Very contentious at the time. Mm. Uh, and much like many other countries, it has a population of just over 59 million people. So it is 
a large country. It's not the biggest on the African continent. That's Nigeria, which we'll speak about in a couple of minutes. But, you know, it is a significant player and it significantly influences the politics of the continent. So what about the current government then? So the ANC, the current government led by Cyril Ramaphosa, he himself came to power after Jacob Zuma, who was the previous president who was stained by corruption, Mm. suffered a a number of corruption allegations. Zuma tried to purge the party, the African National Congress, of of that reputation, essentially. He wasn't necessarily successful. There was quite a, a bizarre incident recently in which he was accused of finding something like $3 million down the back of his couch at his country ranch. Now, you know, so things like can, that can do Can he not... survive that? Yeah, well, he has managed to, somehow. He has managed to... I think he's done a reasonable job. Certainly when he first emerged a couple of years ago, uh, he performed well, relatively well in his early stages as president. But since then, things have kind of taken a turn. There is no real opposition to him, though. There is an opposition in South Africa. There is an opposition to the ANC. But they have ruled the party since the apartheid era, since 1990. So, I mean, it doesn't look like things are going to change anytime soon. What about militarily and Navy and all of that? What, what is the situation in South Africa? So, it recently conducted naval exercises, naval military exercises with Russia and China. So, that is another piece of evidence just illustrating the kind of the tilt towards those countries. So, it has a, a relatively strong military Probably it hasn't invested too heavily in it, but certainly it has a presence relative to other African countries maybe on the continent. But certainly the fact that it is doing things like conducting the the military exercises with Russia and China and aligning itself with Russia and China, it certainly doesn't bode well for Africa as a whole. It's interesting. Uh, tourism, of course, is huge, isn't it? Tourism huge is huge. You know, I haven't visited. I would love yeah. to visit. It's a no, fascinating I mean, country, but admittedly, the level of violence mm, and the level of insecurity there of, yeah. is certainly something that really has and to I be addressed. The, the townships are still a, very much a reality, aren't they? Uh, yeah, the, I would think so. Yeah. I would think so. I think, you know, we hear a lot about Johannesburg, about Cape Town and that, but certainly there is, um, it's a very diverse population. Yeah. It's quite an eclectic population in South Africa. So still a lot of poverty. And a lot of, of poverty, yeah. quite quite entrenched poverty in in regions, in rural regions. So that is something that some government will have to address. Talk to me about the great uh, rivalry, and that is the United States and uh, China. Where are we with that? Yeah, well, I was reading reading a feature in The Economist, which is where I source a lot of my stories uh, recently, just this week, about the prospect of a war over Taiwan and the, the growing rivalry, the growing... I think battle between the US and China and you know well, you, you just remind us of the the background here where I suppose Nancy Pelosi brought it back to the fore again. She did. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year. Yeah. It caused a major conflagration. The Chinese were not happy. President Xi Jinping was not happy about it. He saw it as an outright provocation if nothing else. And Taiwan, which is a country of of actually 20, well, when I say country now, there's a huge question mark there. Uh, But a land of 23 million people, a significant uh, population there, very few support reunification with China. One poll I read said that just 7% favoured reunification with China. It broke away from China during, I think, the 80s, became its own independent independent statelet, somewhat similar to that of Hong Kong, we will say. Right, but China doesn't recognise it as No, such, does China it? Yeah. doesn't recognise it. Yeah. And China adheres to this kind of, something like the one country, two systems uh, rule, which applies to Hong Kong. But Taiwan, obviously, it has yet to declare, it's President Tsai Ing-Veng 
has yet to declare formal independence and yet there is an overwhelming tilt towards independence in the country. But the US has promised to defend it militarily should China launch any kind of military invasion in the country. So it is a very interesting scenario. And has the war in Ukraine kind of exposed that as a possible other huge uh, escalation of something? I think it has. I think we're obviously very preoccupied with the war in Ukraine. We're obviously, we're paying close attention to that. But the real geopolitical rivalry of the 21st century is that of the US and China. And it's a battle between between two competing systems of governments, between two visions of how the world should work. On the American mm. side, you have liberal Western democracy, then you have the Eastern authoritarian model. And it will have a significant mm. influence, I think, on a lot of East Asian countries, a lot of countries in the Indo-Pacific region, the Indo-Pacific being kind of the Southeast Asia region, countries like the Philippines, Thailand, uh, course, Cambodia, yeah. countries like that. But do they need each other, the States and China? Do well, this is the thing. Because they are the two worlds, the, lar- the largest economies, the two largest economies in the world, they are inter- interconnected. They're intertwined in terms of trade. So we saw President Trump launch a devastating trade war in China. Uh, President Biden hasn't been all that different. You could say it's ironic, really, when you think about it, because... They're such different figures, such different people. Biden is kind of understated and diplomatic. Trump is out there. He's bombastic. He's controversial. And yet their policies in, in relation to foreign policy can actually be quite similar, particularly mm. in respect of China. Biden has kept up a kind of aggressive approach. He's confronted China. He hasn't been as uh, bold rhetorically as President Trump, but he has certainly maintained an aggressive stance to China. But there is no doubt the US and China are intertwined, they're interconnected, indelibly so, and they will not be able to break that connection. And we constantly hear about China, you know, stealing uh, technology and uh, stealing all sorts of information and the the like. How important is that in our conversation? Yeah, well, that is, well, obviously we had this, we have this great era of digitisation and technology has come to the fore in terms of, in terms of how the world economy operates. And China has been accused of stealing Stealing what's known as intellectual property and what that means is essentially stealing ideas, looking at US technologies and taking them, grabbing them for themselves and using them in in a Chinese form. So that is a particular bone of contention between both countries. It's very interesting, really. It's very interesting to see how that dimension of the war, there are kind of a number of dimensions to it, really. We had the Taiwan one, which we mentioned the, the military exercises in the Indo-Pacific yeah. and then this economic and technological trade war which is currently which is currently playing out between both countries and it has been complicated then by Russia's invasion of Ukraine because I think a lot of us are still wondering where does China stand on, on Russia? Because that's not clear, sure. It's, it's not, not clear. It's not clear. It has resisted the urge to to send lethal weapons mm. to mm. Uh, to Russia, which has been, I suppose, a topic, you know, a topic of particular interest recently. The US has has been, I think, suspect of China. You know, it, it has really sounded a lot of warnings and, and indicated that it will respond. It will mount a heavy response if, the, if China does anything of that nature. But I've said this before in the programme, I think... President Xi Jinping sees sees Russian President Vladimir Putin as useful but not indispensable. So in other words, if he feels that the war really isn't going to plan, and I suppose it's not at the moment, 
he can dispense with Russia at his will. But certainly they are trade partners as well. They are bound at the hip economically and that is something to consider. Right. And what about promoting a situation where America and the West would be divided in, in, in more, more profoundly? That would play into China, wouldn't it? That it would certainly would. It yeah. certainly would. The irony is the war in Ukraine has actually united the West like, yeah. like never before. But China will hope that as time as time lingers on and as the cost of living crisis bites as the energy crisis bites then the west will become even more will become divided to a certain extent now that doesn't show signs of happening there has been huge solidarity and it has been a consistent level of solidarity thus far in respect of ukraine but certainly china's china's hope would be that at some point in the future uh, those crises, multiple crises will start to bite and the West will become divided and that is really how the war in Ukraine could benefit it. It's interesting. I'm not sure if you heard Aidy Roach uh, speak out though uh, a couple of days ago and it scared the wits out of me. She was making the point about having a war that involves those nuclear plants, you know? I mean, the possibility of what could go wrong there in Ukraine. Well, there is a huge, I mean, you know, the, the sense of jeopardy there and the consequences would be absolutely huge. We hear about all the time fighting around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. It, it's the largest nuclear plant yeah. in Europe. You know, it, it is incredibly dangerous. She was talking a lot of sense. She was talking about some sort of a peace zone around those areas. You know, I think it makes sense. I yeah. think it makes sense. Now, little makes sense to Vladimir Putin at this current moment in time, but certainly it is a very worrying scenario. Isn't it just indeed? We don't have a huge amount of time uh, left, but can we briefly refer to that enormous task facing the new Nigerian uh, president? A lot to do. Yeah, Bola Tanubu is his name. So it's it's unfortunate, really. We spoke about Peter Obi on the program. He yeah. was the kind of long shot candidate from the Labour Party, and in many ways, the the story of this election was his story. But he only finished third. He got twenty five percent of the vote. Not a bad result, in fairness, when you consider consider the kind of traditional loyalties within Nigerian mm. politics. But anyway, it was Bola Tanubu who emerged as the successful candidate. But he inherits an absolutely splitting economic headache uh, bequeathed to him by the outgoing President Mohamedou Buhari. Economic growth is anemic, really. Annual inflation rose to 21% last December. And Nigerians are poorer on average than they were when the last and it's president. It's a huge country, isn't it? A huge it's population. a huge country, a huge population, 213.4 million. So think of that. South Africa was what? 59 million. 213.4 million people in Nigeria. And a multi dimensional state of crisis affecting a lot of them. You have poor rural regions in the north. You have economic disparities. Big cities like Lagos facing major uh, infrastructural problems. Then you have the insecurity problem, the security threat posed by jihadist, jihadist terrorist groups, which is really biting at this current moment and of time. policy decisions that have been appalling, really. Policy decisions which have been appalling over the years. And in terms of, in terms of campaign pledges and promises, all three candidates, including Bola Tanubu, have promised to, I think, restore a degree of stability to the kind of... Mm policy platforms but that tell they Tell us about that spend on the petrol subsidies, for example. An eye-watering figure. Eye-watering figure. Huge amounts of money spent on spent on these ruinous petrol subsidies. Uh, which ten, were, ten billion, was it? Yeah, ten billion. Ten billion in all, which was supposed to, I suppose, alleviate the cost of living crisis. They shouldn't have done it. It was a ridiculous decision. Now, Bolas Nubu was promised to reverse that decision, but I mean... 
Look, 133 million people in the country are, as I said a minute ago, multidimensionally poor. That's 63% of the population. So unless measures are targeted and targeted towards those groups, Saudi or Nigeria will continue to suffer. Incredible. We only have about 30 seconds left, but I really want to mention this because in terms of something to watch out for, um, where Turkey is concerned, yeah, what, what do yeah, we this need is, to be conscious of there? This is really interesting because for the first time, an opposition candidate has emerged to face Recep Tayyip Erdogan in this May's presidential ele- election. His name is Kemal Kilidarolu. I get the pronunciation right. Mm. Kilidarolu. Uh, Kemal Kilidarolu. And he is the per- essentially the leader of the opposition party. Uh, it is interesting because at least opposition parties have united behind the candidate. They call him the Turkish Gandhi. Uh, which is an interesting nickname because he's kind of a slight physique and a humble style. He will be very interesting to see whether he can realistically challenge Erdogan. Remember, Erdogan suffering the consequences of that lacklustre response to to the the earthquake earthquake, uh, and numerous other crises affecting Turkey. It really will be very interesting to see how that one plays out. At least, I think, the opposition have united behind someone. That is frequently the problem in these kind of countries with a strongman authoritarian leader where there is no viable, I think, opponent to him. It's pity we didn't have time to speak about the uh, Finnish economy minister who is fond of a drop. Uh, yeah, what, he is what? fond of a drop. Yeah, people can look that up from <laughs> they themselves. Can, they can indeed. Thomas, a pleasure as always. Thanks for Pleasure, Fran. Thank you. Thomas Conway with us. Tonnocht, August and also chucked. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie At Thurlis-